welcome back to the Furs and Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. When we covered the Voyagers in an earlier episode, we briefly touched on the Métis. These people were descendants of the European trappers and traders and the indigenous First Nations people. And these people were critically important to the fur trade in Canada, and they're going to come up again and again throughout this podcast, so I wanted to introduce you to them and their culture today. Now, being Métis means that one of your parents is European, so Scottish, French, Irish, American, German, it doesn't matter. And the other parent is indigenous, meaning Cree, Salto, Ojibwa, uh, Algonquian, and so on. The resulting child is of mixed blood and is called a Métis. In fact, if one or both of your parents were themselves a Métis, you would still be a Métis. And there were both advantages and disadvantages to being Métis. One example of a disadvantage would be the stereotypes and discrimination that indigenous tribes faced back in the day, and many unfortunately still face today. In the days of the fur trade, it was a popular belief among whites that natives were lazy, uneducatable heathens in need of conversion to save their souls. And while none of this is true, white people saw Métis children as being Indian. On the other hand, historically, indigenous people often saw the whites as being greedy, rude, and disrespectful. And they saw the Métis children as white. So the Métis of the fur trade era were in this no-man's land between the First Nations and the Europeans. Not quite one race, but also not quite the other. I recently watched a video in which a Métis elder very poignantly said the Métis were the bridge between two worlds, and like any bridge, they got walked on from both sides. There was a time when the vast lands of Canada had no centralized government. The tribes each governed themselves, and after the creation of its charter in 1670, Hudson's Bay Company served as the de facto government. But let's look at this from a native point of view. You and your family are out hunting, gathering, trading, or doing whatever you normally do, and some pasty-skinned, furry-faced guy pulls up in a big boat, tells you he's now in charge of the place, builds a huge log cabin, And when he throws open the shutters, you find it's a trading post filled with amazing, beautiful objects that will make your life easier. And to get those new gadgets, all you have to do is take in a bunch of dead animal pelts. Really? Pfft, that's easy. In fact, that trading post sells iron traps that will make catching those animals a whole lot easier and quicker. Keep in mind that indigenous hunting methods up to this point was mostly by bow and arrow, spear, or clubbing something to death. With a big pile of animal pelts, you can now go buy more cool gadgets, like one of those newfangled rifles the trader has hanging on his wall. I want to debunk a myth here real quickly. Many say that the white traders were constantly taken advantage of and shortchanging the natives in trades. And while I'm sure this type of scamming did happen once in a great while, just like it still happens today, these native people and the Métis weren't stupid. They spent their whole lives trading with each other before the white man's money ever came to town. They knew exactly what they were trading for, and you can bet they got their money's worth. 
In fact, they were known to prefer trading with the French as opposed to the British because they felt that the French offered better products at a better price. Anyways, back to your little Métis tribe. You can't really understand a word that white man is saying, so you start teaching him the universal sign language that all tribes use to communicate with strangers. A good game of charades can go a long way in bartering down a good deal. And over time, a friendship builds between your clan and this European trader. Before long, a woman in your clan falls in love with this French trader and has a baby, a little boy we'll call André. André is given a French name, like his father. And since his father is an educated businessman, André will learn math skills, learn to speak and write French fluently, and probably English as well. But he'll also grow up living in his mother's culture, learning how to fish and hunt, learning how to conduct traditional ceremonies, and learning how to master those trading practices. I would imagine it isn't all that different than today, when an elderly immigrant who has difficulty with their new language looks at the younger generation to translate. Even today, the first generation born in this country understands both worlds and can act as a mediator between these two. So little Andre will grow up acting as a mediator between the indigenous people and his father's European friends. Before long, more and more whites arrive, more mixed blood babies are born, and now there's an entire generation that is bilingual and benefiting from and impacting both worlds. Some of these benefits might be learning the tracking skills from your mother's family and using them in a job as a voyager that your father set up for you. Not only would you have a great job and make a decent income, but your skills as a guide or a translator could earn you some seriously big money. As the demographics begin to shift, with more and more Métis becoming an integral part of society, they start creating their own identity. Being absolutely brilliant hunters and traders, the Métis began establishing settlements along the trade routes to facilitate easier trading with the whites that came through. Now, during the period of time before England and France get bogged down in the Seven Years' War, the Métis lived very well with the French trappers and traders. Once the British came in, things changed, partly because of the British mentality when it comes to conquest. You see, the French would land on a shore, introduce themselves politely to the natives, and begin learning the new language. They would assimilate into the native language. They generally made great effort to get to know the indigenous people and to live primarily in harmony with them, trading fairly and ethically. They married into the tribes and began to create a bridge between their two races. The Brits, on the other hand, would land on a shore, claim the land for whichever monarch was sitting on the throne back home, and then build their first fort. While part of the group is building the fort, others are exploring the new neighborhood making maps, defining areas of vast natural resources waiting for exploitation. As soon as that fort was done, they'd open up trade with the local indigenous tribes. One would think that's not too bad of a deal. The Brits did generally protect First Nation people's rights, honoring their hunting grounds and respecting them as an independent entity. That is, until the Brits wanted what the natives had. Once that first fort becomes overcrowded, 
the Brits would build another and another and another, swallowing up the land around it for their agricultural centers and imposing their laws on the inhabitants that lived there already. They generally did let the indigenous people alone until the natives had something the Brits wanted. And, well, rinse and repeat. In all fairness, this is the same process used by many nations, including our own. It wasn't just the Brits. And generally, the Métis would just shrug and go about their business. They had work to do. These entrepreneurs had bison to hunt to create pemmican. They had furs to transport and trade. And in their minds, this British guy shows up and is now claiming the land that they live on is his territory? Yeah, okay, whatever. That was the whole mentality. Now, we'll discuss pemmican in detail shortly, but I want to take a second here to explain the genius that is the Métis mind. In order to transport heavy bison hides and meat across the plains back to their homes, they invented a two-wheeled cart known as the Red River Cart. Now, two-wheeled carts weren't anything new. The Scots had been doing it for ages. But this cart was unique. It was about the size of a farm wagon with rails or solid sides, maybe five or six feet long. The sidewalls were about three feet high, and the entire cart was held together with strips of bison hide. No nails, no iron on this thing at all. They'd soak the bison hide strips, wrap the joints, and then the leather would shrink as it dried, creating seriously sturdy bonds. The cart could easily move up to 800 pounds, and that's just mind-boggling. The women would create canvas or hide covers for over the top of the wagon, keeping whatever is inside dry, but also giving the traveler a space to sleep under out of the elements. So far, that sounds just like a regular old covered wagon, right? Well, here's the genius part. If the traveler had to ford a river, they could take the wheels off, wrap them in the canvas, and put the rest of the wagon on top of those wrapped wheels and floated across the water, keeping the contents completely dry. And the way the wheels worked was something else unique to the Métis. Back in this day, many European wagon wheels were treated with a grease that would lubricate the axles. The Métis didn't grease their wheels, because the dust and the dirt from the plains would gum it up, causing the wheel to stop turning. So they simply dragged the wagon along as these wheels screeched and whined and moaned. And Europeans gave these wagons the nickname the Northwest Fiddle, saying that that screech was close to a bow being drawn out across out-of-tune fiddle strings. When a hunting party of Métis struck out across the prairie, sometimes in the thousands, it must have sounded like a symphony of these things. Now, off the front of this wagon, there were two rails that a man could stand between, kind of like a wheelbarrow going backwards that has those two handles. Only, these were heavier, and they would sit on either side of an oxen or a horse. And here's some more brilliance for you. If you line a bunch of these carts up front to back, they would be lashed together to form a train, meaning you needed less oxen to pull your load back home. Probably the most telling aspect of these Red River carts is that they were made completely of local wood with no nails, no expensive iron parts, and no hard-to-replace pieces. If something broke, you could take a branch from a nearby tree and create the replacement part sitting right there in the field. So the Red River cart became a symbol of the Métis, but so did something else. 
Weavers will recall that we touched a little bit on the sashes unique to the Métis in the Voyager episode, because these sashes also became an identifying symbol for the Métis. So we're going to go a little bit deeper into that here. At first, companies like Hudson's Bay Company would import a similar woven sash to sell to their employees. Notice I didn't say hand out. The sash wasn't part of the trapper's kit. It was an upgrade package, so to speak, that cost them a considerable amount of money. Since the Métis were as smart as they were frugal, they took this store-bought sash and they used it as a pattern to create their own thing. And while it did look similar at first, they eventually created new patterns and combined different colors. And before long, certain colors and patterns became synonymous with certain weavers. So, for example, you could see a red lightning strike on a white background and know that it was created by a particular weaver, and so on. Since the weavers were in the family creating for family members, those symbols and colors became synonymous with that family name. Now, as we said in the Voyagers episode, these sashes were the multi-tool of their day. Besides the obvious task of holding one's pants up, they could be used as a tump line. That's where the sash is placed across the forehead and it hangs down over each shoulder in the back. Heavy objects are then tied into the sash, meaning the trapper can now carry three bundles of fur instead of two. The sash was also used for more utilitarian purposes, like carrying firewood or tying something up. But did you know it was a fur trade sewing kit? The Voyager would interlace a small bone or metal needle into the lower end of the sash, just above those long fringes. If he got a tear in his clothing, he could untwist one of those long fringes and use it to stitch the tear up. And it was a first aid kit. It could serve as a sling for an injured arm, a splint or cast for an injured leg, and a tourniquet for substantial bleeding. And that bone needle and fringe trick also worked for stitching people back together though I do question the hygienic level there. These finger-woven sashes were so valued by the Voyagers that it became the identifier of the Voyagers themselves, just like those red caps that they wore. To the Métis, the sash identified your family. Certain colors and particular shapes and patterns told the world which family you belonged to. And to this day, the Métis people proudly wear their sashes to events. And while we're talking about Métis ingenuity, let's look at the York boat. This was a large flat-bottomed boat that they designed based on ones from places like Orkney in Scandinavia. It was used on large bodies of water, such as the Great Lakes, and it could hold up to six tons of cargo. It only took eight men to maneuver, and because it was so simply designed, it required very little maintenance. It had a sail and oars and it had a huge impact on the fur trade. So back to the history. The Seven Years' War saw the French on the losing side, and now these victorious Brits begin trying to impose their English laws on the French and indigenous inhabitants. England tried to create the perfect British society in the wilderness of Canada. When the government imposed the Royal Proclamation of 1763, they expected an influx of English migrants to come pouring into this new land. That would make it easier to assimilate those other groups into becoming British citizens. But those English back home were all like, nah, we're good here in England. And over time, the government came to realize that the English immigrants weren't coming. 
and the French and the natives weren't going to get on board with these assimilation plans. So the government revoked the royal proclamation and they laid out a new plan. Now you must understand, at this time, Britain has its hands full already because this is the same time as the British colonists in the 13 colonies are getting fed up. Once the Boston Tea Party happened in 1773, the British government decreed a handful of proclamations trying to get those colonists to toe the line. In America, they were called the Intolerable Acts, but elsewhere, including parts of Canada, they were known as the Coercive Acts. The first act was the Boston Port Act, and this is where the British ships blockaded the port of Boston, and they basically just disrupted all traffic and trade until the colonists paid that $1 million penalty back for dumping all the tea in the harbor. The second act was the Massachusetts Government Act, where the Brits basically told all the people in Massachusetts that their government was acting like an organized crime syndicate, and the British government just replaced the colonial government with their own people who ruled like absolute tyrants and generally made everyone hate the British. The third was called the Act for Impartial Administration of Justice. This gave the British governors of all territories, including the 13 colonies, the right to move criminal trials to a place of their choosing, which included England, effectively taking away the citizens' right to a trial by a jury of their peers. And the fourth little tidbit they passed was called the Quartering Act. Most people think this is where the British military was allowed to hole up in the houses of common folk, eat all their food, pillage their daughters, and take whatever they wanted. That's not true. Quartering Act said that common folk were required by law to allow British soldiers to take up refuge in outbuildings only, like gardens and sheds, but not in your house though the people did still have to feed them and foot the bill for it all. Then comes the big finale, the Quebec Act of 1774. This was kind of a mixed bag of decrees, actually. Some were good, some not so much. On one hand, it guaranteed the rights of the French people who lived in that region, removing any barring that their Catholic faith had imposed, like running for positions in government. Up to now, the Protestant Brits didn't let those Catholics do anything. So in that way, the French citizen did gain something in the Quebec Act of 1774. It also guaranteed Indian land as pretty much anything west of the Appalachian mountain range, restricting settlement for the colonists to the east side of the mountain range. Great news for the natives in the west, but not so much for the colonists who were looking to move westward or who already lived in the Ohio Valley. On the other hand, it imposed British laws not only on territories like the French and Métis parts of Quebec, but also on other North American territories like Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, uh, parts of Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Illinois, meaning those settlers who had already parked in places like Ohio and Michigan had to go back east and give up what they had just worked so hard for. And... As you can imagine, this was the last straw for the American colonists, who kicked off their revolution and upon winning the war, wrote a constitution guaranteeing certain rights, like no quartering, freedom to a fair trial, etc. And it's because of those intolerable acts that those things are even written into our constitution. So 
how does all this British and American bickering affect the Métis and the First Nation? Well, the Quebec Act was an awesome thing for them. It guaranteed that nobody would come encroaching on their lands. It gave them the right to practice any faith they wanted without punishment. They could actively participate in colonial governments. And it also guaranteed that although they would still have to deal with British criminal law, they could keep their own civil laws. But it also guaranteed that any land sales in their territory must be preceded by a treaty with the government. Essentially, the government had to meet with them ahead of time and work out the details before they gave away any land rights. And that was a huge win for the First Nations and the Métis. It basically guaranteed they would be part of the negotiations and agreements that affected them. Now, in Scotland, all the way across the world, the Highland Clearances are happening. And this was similar to what the American government did to our North American indigenous people. They had something the government wanted, prime real estate. We kicked them off and put them on reservations. Only, instead of the government doing it, the nobility did it to the lower class farmers. They basically took all the land their tenants were living on, kicked the tenants off, and either used the land for their own grazing purposes, or re-rented it at a higher price that those poor farmers couldn't afford. The first time they did it, the displaced farming families went to live with friends and family in town. When these towns became overcrowded, the nobility kicked them out again, this time offering what they called assisted passages to anywhere else in the world but Scotland. So it was basically, you can't live here, there's the boat dock. Oh, hey, enjoy Canada in the winter. And in 1812, a Scottish noble by the name of Thomas Douglas he was the Lord of Selkirk, decided to create a new Canadian agricultural colony for all these immigrants to go to. At first, he asked the British government nicely for a land grant, but Hudson's Bay Company had a stranglehold on all the acreage within Rupert's land area. When Lord Selkirk's request was unceremoniously denied, he bought as many of the Hudson's Bay Company shares as he could, and then built his colony anyways. You gotta love Scottish ingenuity. He named the town after himself, Selkirk. If you're looking at the Canadian map, it's the lower right-hand corner of Manitoba. So Selkirk's new Hudson Bay colony sat on the banks of the Red River, right smack in the middle of the Northwest Company's supply route for trading with the natives and the Métis who lived there. And I remind you, they were already living there before the Scots got there. They had based their pemmican business out of this town. It goes without saying, the Métis refused to accept Selkirk as their new overlord. And they tried desperately to keep that pemmican business going. And Hudson's Bay Company was having none of it. So we're going to take a detour here to discuss pemmican. Because not only was it an integral part of their lives, but it nearly became the agent of their destruction. So pemmican is a concoction of equal parts meat and fat that solidifies into a hard bar, kind of having the consistency of hardened candle wax. And while that might not sound appetizing to our modern sensibilities, this food could be stored unrefrigerated literally for decades without spoiling, if it was cooked properly. There are a number of sources online explaining how to make pemmican, but I'll give you a brief lowdown here. You take equal parts of lean beef, 
preferably red meat like venison or beef, and an equal amount of rendered fat. Most importantly, you dehydrate that meat without any additives or marinade. No soy sauce, flavorings, nothing. You're not making beef jerky, you're just desiccating the meat. You do this slowly for about 15 or so hours below a temperature of 150 degrees. And when it's completely desiccated, completely dried out, meaning that it snaps rather than it bends like beef jerky does, you grind it to a flake or a powder. And for anyone new to this rendezvous stuff, rendered fat is that white stuff that congeals in the pan after you've cooked bacon. It's liquid while the heat is applied, but it cools to a soft solid afterwards. If you strain the chunky stuff out of that while it's still a liquid, you get the type of clean fat needed to make pemmican. And here's a word of advice if you want to try making your own. You can buy a tub of fat at the grocery store, but there is a phenomenal difference between fat from grass-fed critters and fat from grain-fed critters. The grass-fed fat gives you more nutritional bang for your buck in the finished product. So besides the fat and meat, the voyagers and the mountain men really appreciated when the Métis would make it by adding dried Saskatoon berries to the pemmican. It vastly improves the flavor. And you can try adding dried berries to yours, but introducing foreign things like that shortens the shelf life of your pemmican bars. And a word of caution, never use nuts or anything with oil in it because it will completely corrupt the final product. Traditionally, when making pemmican for the mountain men, the Métis would make it in these long oblong bags which were filled up in sewn clothes and then they were laid out flat to solidify. Each bag weighed a solid 100 pounds if not more. And to give you an idea of what that equates to, one and a half pounds of pemmican is roughly equivalent to eight pounds of fresh meat. So you can see the space-saving benefits of compressing eight pounds of meat into a block that only weighs a pound and a half and lasts 20 years or more. Many forts would stock up on those big 100-pound bags for lean winters or to aid ailing colonies in hard times. And the Métis had a thriving business with the trappers and traders of companies like Northwest Company and Hudson's Bay Company, but Hudson's Bay Company did not want them trading with the Northwest Company. They wanted it to stop. The Northwest Company had been a pain in Hudson's Bay's backside for a while, taking away prime beaver furs that Hudson's Bay wanted for itself, and basically being nicer to the Métis in deals, making Hudson's Bay look bad. So anything they could do to get rid of this competitor was a good thing in the minds of Hudson's Bay Company. In some parts of Canada, the beaver furs were the main trade for many tribes. They would swap the furs for the European goods at those trading posts. But for some tribes, and the Métis in particular, the pemmican trade was their lifeblood. In fact, some scholars think that the pemmican trade was a major factor in the Métis society emerging at all. For many Métis, trading pemmican to companies like Northwest Company was how they survived. It was their only job. And it was also this trade that created an increase in the number of settlements and improved the chances of survival for those settlers. For colonies that were facing starvation during particularly cruel winters, pemmican was their saving grace. So fur companies and forts needed to keep their supply routes clear so that they could keep this vital food source flowing in. On the other side of that coin, 
British Governor Miles MacDonald is welcoming immigrants left and right, and he quickly realizes he has a problem. He's got more people than he can feed. Now, a little bit of historic irony here. It was late in the summer when those Scottish settlers got to the area, and there was no opportunity to plant or sow crops for their winter storage. They spent that first winter starving and desperately relied on the forts for help. But the forts weren't stocked well enough to support them all. You know what they needed to survive? The very same pemmican they didn't want the Métis producing. So we have a budding colony of starving Scottish immigrants and a tense relationship with the Northwest Company and Hudson's Bay Company. Into this already tense situation, let's introduce British Governor Miles MacDonald's proclamation. It was called the Pemmican Proclamation. In this long-winded decree, he basically spelled out the borders of a territory roughly encompassing what we today would call Manitoba. That was no longer, and I quote, allowed to export pemmican. It also limited the number of bison they were, quote unquote, allowed to kill, citing that those bison needed to be available for the new incoming Scottish settlers. It also stated that any pemmican they did make belonged to the Scottish settlers in the Red River Colony. So he basically said, I'm your new governor and you're all out of business. And you can't hunt bison for a food supply anymore. That now belongs to my friend the Scots. Oh, and give them all your little power protein bars while you're at it. And if I find out you fussed about any of this, I'm going to take all your stuff, your canoe, your wagon, your horses, and I'm going to kick you off my land and give it to these Scottish immigrants. Well, as you can imagine, this did not sit well with the Métis, who were there first, obviously, and who depended on that trade for income. It was particularly galling because the Métis had been friendly to any immigrant coming by. They were half European, after all. They could relate. And it was because of them sharing their knowledge that many of these wilderness noobs survived at all. Now, Governor MacDonald is threatening to take her stuff. Good luck with that. Nor did this sit well with the Northwest Company, who depended on that blockaded pemmican for survival. They were like, you picked a fight with our friends and food supplier, the Métis, and we're not going to let you get away with that. And we're bringing backup. So both sides begin this call to arms against each other, with the Métis, the Voyagers, the First Nations people, and the Northwest Company employees on one side, and Hudson's Bay Company employees and the British militia on the other side. The Métis tried to circumvent the enforcers and get Pemmican out to the Northwest Company traders. Hudson Bay forces shut them down. They formed new blockades trying to stop the Pemmican from reaching those Northwest locations. The Métis started hunting the bisons whenever they bloody well wanted to, meaning that the Scottish immigrants who were already close to starvation were now feeling it worse. The Métis smuggled what they could to the Northwest Company in exchange for firearms and ammunition to revolt against the stupid rules of Lord Selkirk and his very unpopular governor. The Northwest Company was getting desperate to get supplies back and forth to their own colonies and their own employees. Hudson's Bay Company began intercepting the Northwest Company boats that were most often smuggling the pemmican out, confiscating any and everything they had on board. In one raid, they made off with a hundred of those oblong hundred-pound bags of pemmican, and then another blockade netted them 500 more. 
Add to this the other supplies that were on the boats, like the firearms intended for the Métis, the furs they'd accumulated, and you can see why the Métis and the Northwest Company were getting upset. Now, Hudson's Bay Company forces were firmly in control, and they were enforcing that Pemmican proclamation with all their might. So the Northwest people start arresting the Hudson's Bay people, and the Hudson's Bay people start arresting the Northwest people. And the Métis, the indigenous tribes, the voyagers, the Northwest trappers, they all retaliated against Hudson's Bay troops, with each side trying to burn down the other's forts and colonies. And finally, on June 19, 1816, the confrontation came to a head in what is known as the Battle of Seven Oaks. The Métis were approaching Fort Douglas in the Red River Colony, what we today would call Winnipeg. And the Hudson's Bay Company forces saw these guys and panicked, thinking they were under attack. Now, for the next 25 minutes, all manners of Hades fell upon these men facing off. The freaked out Hudson's Bay employees started dropping like flies at the hands of these Métis sharpshooters. At the end of it, 25 Red River colonists and Hudson's Bay employees lay dead, and one Métis warrior had died and another was wounded. Several deaths occurred among the native tribes and the voyagers, though I could find no record of how many. Many Hudson's Bay people were captured and they were carted off to the Northwest Company's Fort William to stand trial, in quotes. Intending to reclaim his captive employees, Lord Selkirk himself led the march of his troops to Fort William, which I remind you is owned by the British group Northwest Company, and Lord Selkirk seized everything in sight. Well, the war itself might be over, but Selkirk's problems had just begun. The Northwest Company sued the pants off him for the unlawful occupation of Fort William, and for the next several years, Selkirk almost went broke, nearly spending all of his vast fortune to defend himself in court. So Northwest just kept him tied up in legal battles. In the end, the Northwest Company did get their fort back, the Métis Pemmican trade did resume, and by 1821, the British government was so sick of listening to the squabbling between these two rival fur companies that they, and I quote, strongly encouraged them to merge together, which they did, retaining the name Hudson's Bay Company. And for about 20 years, everything was going pretty well. Most First Nations and Métis tribes governed themselves well, and most British governors left the indigenous people alone. Everyone adhered to the rules set out both in that Proclamation of 1763 and also in the Quebec Act of 1774, which protected indigenous rights. Then in 1841, the Territory of Canada West, which is present-day Ontario, issued a license for the exploration of minerals to a company without first holding that promised treaty meeting with the Métis. The company proceeded to survey the area, which included the Mica Bay area of Lake Superior shoreline, where many of these natives were living. Seeing a serious amount of profit in their future, Canada West set up the Quebec Mining Company and began to rake in the dough on the metals being extracted from that mine. Well, when the Métis and the indigenous people fussed about it, they were resoundingly ignored. So one First Nation chief in particular was savvy about what the previous proclamations had spelled out, and he knew he was entitled to that treaty meeting. His name was Shing Wakanse, 
or Shingwok in some sources. And he was an Ojibwe chief. Shingwok was unhappy about the mineral mining company that's taking over his territory and the fact that the British government did not hold that treaty meeting before it gave away his turf. And he began protesting and raising a ruckus. And the government basically blew off his concerns. So in 1849, Shingwok and a few other chiefs gathered multiple First Nation tribes and Métis and led them all down to Micah Bay on the shore of the Lake Superior with the intent of kicking this mining company off their property. The government sent a hundred soldiers to quell the uprising, and many of those First Nation leadership was arrested. But something awesome came out of this. This event forced the government to behave and to stick to the terms laid out in the treaties. Not only that, but they also now had to pay annuities to the tribes on that wealth of metal that they were digging out of the grounds. So the Métis, having the benefit of both worlds, began petitioning for land grants using some of that annuity money that the tribe was receiving from the mining company. Then in 1867, the British North America Act is passed, creating the Dominion of Canada. The Dominion purchased Rupert's land from the Hudson Bay Company without even asking the First Nations or the Métis for their input. And in all fairness, Hudson Bay Company did try to warn the Dominion what would happen if they did not consult the Métis. The Dominion just didn't care. So when the Dominion began to survey their new territory holdings, they found that the Red River Métis had gotten mad, and they got the jump on them, and they had established their own provisional government. And here's where we meet one of the Métis heroes. His name is Louis Riel, R-I-E-L, Riel. He was a Métis politician who outsmarted the Dominion of Canada by establishing that provisional government. He's often called the father of Manitoba. This action of establishing this provisional government essentially forced Canada to enter negotiations with the Métis to set aside lands for their own use, as well as give explicit rights of language and freedoms to their people. Riel was named the president of this new nation and established different branches of government, even creating the first newspaper for his people called the New Nation. As you can imagine, the Dominion was less than happy about having to deal with this provisional government, and they began openly plotting against the Métis. The Dominion started fomenting dissent and even openly encouraging their loyalists to try to kill Riel, and, or at least overthrow him. The Métis caught a brigade of these loyalists, and the two men, Major Charles Bolton and Thomas Scott, who were leading them and had them tried for interfering in the provisional government. Bolton was tried first. He was found guilty. And he was openly sorry for being a jerk to Riel and to the Métis in general. So Louis Riel pardoned him. Thomas Scott, on the other hand, was openly hostile to the Métis because of their half-breed status, which he saw as inferior. So he proceeded to shoot his mouth off to anyone and everyone, picking fights with his guards and generally just being a schmuck. When it came to his trial, he was also found guilty. However, he showed no remorse, and he continued his schmucky ways until he insulted and alienated every one of the jurors who then sentenced him to death. Well, this put Louis Rial in an interesting position. If he did not carry out the sentence, the Canadian government would never take him seriously. If he did, 
the Canadian government was going to lose its mind. Thomas Scott was executed by the Métis firing squad on March 4, 1870, and the Dominion of Canada issued a bounty of $5,000 on Riel's head, and he had to disappear into the shadows for a while. In fact, he spent some of his exile in the United States. But despite his Canada's most wanted status, delegates from his provisional government did meet with the Dominion government, and they took with them this list of demands. And many of those demands were actually met. Now, in 1870, the Manitoba Act saw the introduction of their land as a new province within the Dominion. The Métis finally had something to call their own, 1.4 million acres for their children to inherit. However, their jubilation was short-lived. Only five years later, the Métis were once again negotiating for equality. Canada wanted them to identify as Indians. And the First Nations people were saying, yeah, those half-breeds aren't like us. And the Métis are in the middle saying, oh, come on, guys. Finally, in 1875, the Métis signed a treaty with the government known as the Half-Breed Adhesion to Treaty 3. The catch? In order to be treated as equals to the First Nations, they had to identify as Indians. If they wanted to identify as whites, well, then they weren't entitled to any land grants at all. They literally had to choose to be brown or white. And they knew they were both. Now, after much negotiations, the parties finally found a middle ground and the treaty was successfully signed. And then the Dominion of Canada completely ignored their side of the bargain. In fact, as late as 2017, the descendants of the Métis in northwestern Ontario were still fighting that good fight. So the year is still 1880, and the Métis and First Nations are petitioning the Canadian government to establish education opportunities for the Indigenous people, to resolve disputed land issues. Between the years of 1881 and 1885, the brand new Canadian Pacific Railway brings in waves upon waves upon waves of new European settlers that flood over the plains, disrupt the lives of the Métis on the prairies. Feeling like they had no other choice, they started something known in history as the Northwest Resistance. And in this resistance, the Saskatchewan Métis go find Louis Riel and ask him to come back and lead the resistance, which he did very well. The Métis resistance fighters clashed with the Northwest Mounted Police at a place called Duck Lake. And another Métis hero, the freedom fighter Gabriel Dumont, led the charge. And in the end, 12 Mounties lay dead. The newly formed Canadian government goes ballistic. They see this uprising and they send 8,000 troops to quell it. And those soldiers open fire on the Métis, leaving scores and scores of Métis dead. Unfortunately, Rial and many of the other resistance leaders were captured. Louis was given a laughably ridiculous mock trial, found guilty of treason, and hung before the resistance movement could gather their wits about him. It was a clear message to the Métis and to anyone else who was going to challenge this new Canadian government. On a side note, that happened in 1885, and to this very day, in April of 2023, Many skilled Métis lawyers and activists are still trying to get Louis Rial exonerated of all charges. Because without him, 
there would be no Manitoba. So the message that the Canadian government was sending was received loud and clear. Many Métis began to blend into the white society as best they could. To identify oneself as a Métis meant inviting hostility and possibly death. But you can't keep a good people down. And though it would take them many years to finally be recognized as a unique tribe of people, they never lost sight of themselves. They knew their history. They knew their contributions, and they were proud of their ancestors. In fact, it wasn't until 1982 before the Métis were given official tribal status and recognized as one of Canada's three original Indigenous peoples, with the Inuit and the First Nations being the other two. And once they cleared that hurdle, the sky was the limit for these people. They began petitioning for their rights and for their rightful lands. Their unique culture and language became an object of proud identity rather than ridicule. In fact, let's talk a minute about that language. The language spoken by the Métis is called Michif. It's spoken in several areas of the United States as well as Canada. Now, Michif is a mixed language, meaning it takes elements from different languages and it combines them to become something unique. A good example of this would be Haitian Creole. Part of it's made up of Haitian words, part of it's French. Part of it is a combination of French and Haitian words. And some of those words are just completely unique to itself. In Michif, it's a combination of Cree and French. Many of the verbs are Cree, while many of the nouns are primarily French. And then you have words that are kind of a combination of both, or they sound similar to one or the other. For example, that blanket coat that we wear at the black powder reenactments is called a capote in English. In French, the T is silent, so it's called a capot. And it's the same in Michif, capot. In English, we would say, hello. The French would say, bonjour. In Michif, it's pronounced, bonjour. In French, a horse is a cheval, whereas it's a joual in Michif. So those words are similar, but not exactly French. On the flip side of that topic, there are words borrowed directly from the Dene tribe, from the Algonquins, from the Ojibwa. For example, Kinnikinnik is an Algonquin term that the Métis use. In fact, since this language is unique to the Métis, it's become synonymous with the identity of the people. So some people will call themselves Métis, and some people will say, I'm Michif. Probably one of the most important Michif words that they use to describe their own identity is the word Otipemsoak. It's O-T-I-P-E-M-I-S-O-W-A-K. Otipemsoak. It means those that rule themselves, and it shows you how proudly independent they are as a tribe. They've had a very long, tough fight to have their identity officially recognized. And while they continue to struggle for the honor they so rightly deserve, we history lovers can grant them the honor of being instrumental in the success of the fur trade, the one that we love to portray. It's the Métis people who created the products that the voyagers needed, like clothing, nets, and tools. They created the York boat that improved stability on turbulent open waters and lowered the death rate for the voyagers. They created the Red River cart that brought bison back to make pemmican for the starving colonists. But 
probably the most important thing is it was the Métis who created that pemmican, that life-saving protein bar that saved so many lives, so many of the early Canadian citizens. If it wasn't for the Métis, we would be able to enjoy the grace and beauty of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police musical ride. If you have never watched a video of this, I highly suggest it. It is poetry in motion. Now, some say the Mounties musical ride is based on the military drills set to music that the Métis used to practice their horsemanship. That music was often square dancing music, creating a tempo, but it also gave instructions. Spin your partner round and round. And their horsemanship was based on those instructions. At least that's one theory. And the Métis were known far and wide for their skills, both as equestrians, but also as sharpshooters. It was the Métis who created Manitoba and brought it into the Dominion of Canada. And it was the Métis living south of the 49th parallel that prepared the territories of Minnesota, the Dakotas, Montana, and Oregon to become American states by acting as a bridge, serving as interpreters, acting as intermediaries and guides. And it was the Métis who ensured that when two very different worlds collided, a bridge formed between them, creating a walkway that led to stability and prosperity. The Métis flag, the oldest indigenous patriotic flag in Canada, the same flag that predates the Canadian maple leaf by 150 years, the same flag that snapped in the wind at the Battle of Seven Oaks in 1816, when the Métis threw down the proverbial gauntlet. That flag sums up their legacy. In a sea of blue, the white infinity symbol proves their culture will live forever. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed this trip through the history of the Métis. I strongly encourage you to do more research into these people because it is an amazing story of triumph. Join me in a few weeks for the next episode. Until then, please check out the other episodes at fursandfrontiers.com. Have a great weekend, everybody, and keep your powder dry. Mm-hmm.